it's not about directing communities, it's about working alongside them, really trying to understand what motivates them, you know, what their values are. I mean, I think fundamentally our values are all the same, really. When you when you drill down to it, people want the best for their children and their families. And so I think if you meet people at that level of what is common to us all and our humanity, then people will respond to that. Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Amanda Leck. Amanda is Executive Director at the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience, or ADAR. ADA develops, maintains and shares knowledge and learning to support a disaster resilient Australia. They are supported by the Australian Government Department of Home Affairs, AFAC and the Australian Red Cross and work with government, communities, NGOs, not-for-profits, research organisations, education partners and the private sector to enhance disaster resilience through innovative thinking, professional development and knowledge sharing. Amanda is a community development and engagement professional who has provided leadership and strategic direction in the planning, implementation and delivery of programs in complex environments. With 20 years' experience in the emergency management and community sectors, Amanda led the community development area for the Country Fire Authority in Victoria. Joining AFAC in 2009, she was appointed Director of Community Safety in 2013, where she provided strategic advice in relation to risk reduction, community safety and warnings. In 2019, Amanda was appointed as Executive Director of the Australian Institute of Disaster Resilience. Throughout the podcast, the depth of knowledge and experience that Amanda has was clear, but what struck me most were the examples of hope, community spirit, activism and progress that she shared. It was a great privilege to speak to someone that is in the thick of developing resilient communities on a national level, and although I'm often left very concerned about the future of Australia in the face of the climate crisis, I know that I can rest a little bit easier with people such as Amanda on the case. Amanda and I discuss her career working in communications, community development and engagement, the importance of giving to others in service, becoming a leader, saying yes, working hard and broadening your horizons, empowering communities, adaptation, transformation and learning, the climate crisis and its impact on disasters and resilience, optimism and the power of grassroots movements, young people as advocates of change, what Amanda does to keep motivated and a moment of clarity. Thanks for listening and without further delay, I bring you Amanda Leck. Amanda, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Good morning, Matthew. For the guests that haven't, you know, heard of you or, or about your work, can you introduce yourself and, and a little bit about what you do and, and some of your career as well? Well, my name is Amanda Leck. I'm the Executive Director of the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience. That's a business unit of AFAC, the National Council for Fire and Emergency Services. And uh, ADA is a partnership of AFAC, and the Australian Red Cross, and we're fully funded by Emergency Management Australia. I've been involved as a director with AFAC and ADA for many years, and I took over as the executive director nearly two years ago, and it's my great pleasure to lead this organisation. Yeah, what's been your, I guess, journey in, in this field and, and even right at the start? Sort of what did you study and how did you end up in the position you're at now? Well, I think like a lot of people, Matthew, I never thought I would end up where I have ended up. And I spent a lot of my career wondering what I would be when I grew up. Um, It's only when you look in the rear vision mirror at my stage of uh, my career and and leading a national organisation dedicated to supporting communities to become more resilient that I think that my pathway makes sense to me now. Um, I've had quite a varied career. I started with a university degree at the University of Melbourne where I did honours in history, so uh, history and philosophy, so quite a lot of sort of researching and writing and those sorts of things. I think that's probably one of my core skills. Um, And then subsequent to university, I was fortunate to do a cadetship with Southdown Press, which is a subsidiary of News Limited. And I worked for a few years in um, publishing with with that organisation. And Like many women, I took um, a bit of a career break. I uh, have three children who are now all grown up and I am, in fact, a a recent grandmother. Uh, So I have had three children over a sort of a 12-year period where I 
you know, work part-time, often in roles around journalism, editing, writing, those sorts of areas, particularly in the ski industry, would you believe? So how does a skier end up leading a National Disaster Resilience Institute, you might ask? But during those years where I was working part-time and quite involved with uh, my children, I was also very involved with my community. So I did a lot of volunteering work, helped establish the local kindergarten through grant submissions. I worked at the local or volunteered my time at the local living and learning centre. I was the volunteer with uh, CFA, the Country Fire Authority. And through all of those volunteering roles, I came to really be working as a volunteer in community engagement and community development. But I don't think I even knew it was called that at the time. It was about strengthening communities, connecting communities, a lot of, you know, fundraising for, you know, kindergartens and schools and CFA brigades and those sorts of things um, where I took on some leadership roles. And so when uh, my youngest child was, um, you know, heading more into kindergarten and, and I had a bit more, you know, time to devote to my career, I applied for a role, that, which was only a six-week role, to go to the Country Fire Authority and to do some work on the um, competency-based training. So at that time in Australia, uh, we had moved to adopt a, a national competency framework of which emergency services were part of that. And so my role was to take often sort of handwritten training notes and turn them into Australian fire competencies. And so... Um, I remember driving down to CFA. Now, you have to remember my involvement with CFA had been quite a small rural fire brigade. I had a little bit of contact with the regional office when I had to go down and get a new pair of overalls or something like that. So off I stepped to Burwood to their headquarters where I was going to be interviewed for this role. And I couldn't believe how many aerials were on the roof. In fact, I can still picture myself sitting in the car looking and seeing these what appeared to be hundreds of aerials across the top of the CFA headquarters building. And I had no idea as a volunteer that, you know, there was this organisation, I suppose, that ran fire operations for almost of Victoria at that time, or certainly all of regional and rural Victoria. So anyway, I was successful in getting that role. Six weeks became six months, became two years, and I ultimately had a 10-year career with CFA. Um, I was able to uh, then take on roles where I brought together my communications background, my community engagement and development work that I'd done locally and also my training experience. And um, I uh, moved into what we call the Community Safety Directorate in around 2000, I think it was, and then had um, a seven-year career, uh, I suppose, you know, gaining a number of skills and uh, qualifications and I ultimately uh, finished my career with CFA leading the community development area which was around encouraging communities to be prepared for bushfire through hazard preparedness activities so we ran a number of statewide programs such as community fire guard the fire ready Victoria street corner uh, meeting program uh, we had an extensive um, engagement and awareness campaign that we ran every year, ABC phone-in days and the like. And during my time at CFA, I was also instrumental in leading the development of a warnings and information uh, capability during operational events or, or, you know, big fires. And that occurred in CFA in 2002 and 2003. Uh, and there was a number of us in the community safety area that really felt it was important to be able to provide public information and warnings to communities so that they could take action to either stay and defend or leave early uh, when a fire occurred in the landscape. So much there to unpack. I guess the first thing is, did you grow up in a rural location or did you just end up there through skiing or what was your story there? No, no, I, I ended up there because um, I was married. I was married quite young, straight out of university. And my husband had grown up in that area and wanted us to, you know, raise a family there, uh, which we did on 15 acres. And I was fortunate to meet a, a number of other uh, young mothers, as I was then. And together, you know, we 
became involved in the local brigade and, you know, establishing the local kindergarten and then the local school. And, you know, we were very good friends for many, many years. We were involved with the local uh, living and learning centre, which is like a neighbourhood house. Yeah, it was through that involvement. But I grew up in a family where service was always very important. So my mother, for example, uh, we came from England. She was a lady circle person. So they were women that would help other women in the community. Say they'd had a baby or they were unwell. They would take meals to help them or, you know, run errands. My father was quite involved uh, with a local church. Uh, he was an accountant, so he was on the vestry. I think he was treasurer of every sporting and community group, either myself or my brother or sister involved in. So scouts, brownies, tennis, you name it, he ended up doing the books. So I grew up with two very hardworking parents. Both my parents worked full time, which was probably unusual in the 60s and 70s but they also gave back to their community extensively. And so that was, I suppose, early grounding in thinking it was important to give to others, uh, to help others in the community. And I think that's been something that's guided my journey through my career and my personal life as well. In terms of community and community development, I find it and looking around, being a part of a of Melbourne and an urban environment, a suburban environment where you do see community programs at times, but you find that it it's sometimes difficult to engage, and you find that people really have to work hard and hold deep within their heart to want to engage in their community rather than it just being the norm. Do you think living in a rural location allowed you to, I guess, follow in the footsteps of your parents more readily, or would you? Did you have that drive no matter where you would have been, do you think? I think I would have had that drive wherever I was to connect with others, either around interests or around, you know, location. I suppose in a, and it wasn't really a rural community, it was more sort of an urban fringe community. Okay, yep. Um, 25 kilometres out of Melbourne. But I think in a rural setting or a semi-rural setting like that, it's probably a little bit easier uh, I, I understand the challenges of community engagement in urban contexts. However, that engagement often occurs around, for example, faith-based communities or interest-based communities. I now live in an inner uh, urban area just, you know, on the outskirts of the CBD and I see all of the dog lovers and dog owners uh, each night out in the local park and they're engaging around their interest in their animals and pets. So community connections occur everywhere. You just have to look for them and be open to them. Now, that's great to know because it is sometimes, well, one of the reasons I have this podcast is to connect with people that are connecting with their community and connecting with their values and ideals and acting upon those rather than just believing something and typing it in on their in their keyboard in their twitter um, accounts or whatever they're they're actually getting out there and and that's something that i know that you've shown and and discussed about what you've done i guess was there a turning point for you from getting well you, you talked a little bit about it already but was there a turning point from having that history and philosophy background and then going into you know volunteering and being involved in your community to then wanting to be a leader in what you do did that come from a from a goal of yours or was it just that you became more naturally a leader within your groups and community I think it's always very difficult Matthew to reflect on your own leadership journey I mean I don't think that I woke up one morning and said I want to be a leader um, my peers uh, elected me to leadership roles uh, within my volunteering life uh, so I think I was one of the youngest ever presidents of a ladies' auxiliary for a CFA brigade and had to actually Google, well, there was no Google, was there? I had to find out how to make spawns. I've never made a spawn in my life. Um, but I think you find leaders at every level and in every community. So it's not necessarily born out of age or gender or role or position. It's about people that are prepared to step up and take on a challenge or take on a task uh, for me, it was often around doing some fundraising and, you know, someone had to, you know, organise all the food and the barbecues and the rosters and all those sorts of things and I'm one of those people. I'm just, you know, quite a well-organised person. So, 
you know, I blame my mother for that, of course. Uh, my mother was incredibly well organised. You know, she had three children, worked full time as an executive assistant, and you know, also managed to you know volunteer in the community. So. Uh, you can't do those sorts of things unless you've got lots of energy and you're well organised. And my mother was, and I like to think that I am as well. So I think it was through those sorts of skills that I took on roles. And then in terms of my more professional career, I think it's just been a process of working hard, being recognised for some of that work, uh, having opportunities. You know, I'm sure people listen to your podcast for a bit of advice around their careers always take those opportunities. I've been blessed to have had some wonderful mentors uh, and managers who I've worked for who have potentially, I suppose, identified something in me to offer me those opportunities, but I've always said yes. And um, often it's those opportunities that get you to the next step in your career. The other thing I would say is um, don't be afraid to take on new things. So I um, left the emergency services sector uh, in 2007 and I took on a role with local government and I'd never worked with local government, but I thought I needed to broaden out my skill set because local government is the level of government closest to the community and often has a key role around supporting communities to understand their, you know, their risks and their hazards. And, and to take action around those. And I felt that it was important to get some local government experience. So at that time, I felt a bit fish out of water because I hadn't worked in that setting previously. However, it was an extremely good experience for me. I worked directly uh, with a, a disadvantaged community, linear community resilience project funded by uh, the state government in partnership with local government. And I, I took on that role for three years. And I would like to think there were many projects and programs implemented in that community that made a difference for them. Uh, and they, they were around broader uh, resilience than hazard or disaster resilience. It was a, a broad uh, community resilience program. But, um, you know, I made some terrific friendships there and, you know, worked hard to try to help and benefit that community and set in place some things that I hope have um, continued on. I want to go through a couple of definitions now. Uh, one is community development and the other one is resilience and, and what those terms mean to you. Well, community development is really, uh, I suppose it's a process or an approach to working with communities, but working with them and empowering them to understand uh, their context in which they live and what they can do around taking action. So in the context of fire or flood, it's taking action to be better prepared. But in the context of broader social issues, it may be things like helping young mothers to be able to attend maternal and child health or early playgroups for their children or to see the value in early reading programs and so on. So a community development approach is very much around enabling communities. Uh, it's not about directing communities. It's about working alongside them, really trying to understand what motivates them, you know, what their values are. I mean, I think fundamentally our values are all the same, really. When you when you drill down to it, people want the best for their children and their families. And so I think if you meet people at that level of what is common to us all and our humanity, then people will respond to that. So uh, community development is certainly not around telling people what they need to do or you know, in any way sort of imposing anything. It's about working with communities where they're at and enabling them to grow and flourish and thrive, whatever the circumstance. In terms of resilience, I like to think of resilience as a capacity. So it's about capacities for resilience. And, you know, there are many definitions and people can look up the UN definition or they can look up the 100 Resilient Cities definition. But the common elements are around this notion of adaptation, transformation and learning. So uh, if you take, for example, the impacts of climate change, we know that we're nearly, uh, we're around 1.5 degrees warmer than, than our baseline. So we know that we are already seeing disasters of a scale and magnitude that we have not seen before, as well as many compounding and cascading type disasters. So bushfires and then floods immediately afterwards impacting a community or, you know, the impacts of COVID when we're in, you know, recovery from the black summer of fires. 
We know that communities need to adapt to these changing circumstances. They need to learn. So they need to, for example, understand that things have changed and we may never have had bushfire before in this region or this area, but we are going to start to, you know, experience bushfire and we need to prepare for that. So it's about learning from what's occurred. It's about adapting what we do and transforming so that we can live in the context of what's occurring. You're in that space of understanding climate, understanding Australia, understanding our, I guess, our culture, both within cities and rural locations across the national landscape, I guess. Are you hopeful with how Australians are reacting to the science of climate change and understanding that it is a crisis that's upon us? Is it a controversial item for you when you navigate you know, different stakeholders, how does it, where does it fall now to maybe compared to when you first started understanding it yourself? Was there a switch for you personally? And then have you seen a societal sort of switch as well? Well, I would start by saying, I don't think, you know, we can just have one view of the Australian community. There are many, many, many communities across Australia. So for me to sit here and sort of make any statement about that I think is is not uh, appropriate but I'll speak in more general terms I mean I think like everyone 30 years ago we were hearing about global warming and I was in the, the ski industry then so I remember going to a presentation in the 80s about um, the building of Dinner Plain the, the, the new village that was going to be built at Mount Hotham on freehold land it was the only freehold land above the snow line And I remember hearing this term global warming and how ski seasons were going to change from being 16 weeks, you know, to 12 weeks to eight weeks. And, you know, we would need to adapt to that. And that was one of the reasons that dinner playing was established. It was this notion that people would holiday there all year round. It wasn't just a ski resort. So I suppose my 10 years working in the ski industry, I did, in fact, experience those shortening of those seasons. You know, what was a viable season became not a viable season. But I also saw the response of the industry around snowmaking. So that was how the ski industry adapted to the impacts of a warming climate was through the provision of snowmaking. So what became a marginal ski season became a ski season that became viable for for the map, not only for the people who ran the the lifts and the toes, but for all the people that livelihoods depended on that, the lodge owners, the restaurant owners, you know, the, the young people who would, you know, work in the ski fields and so on. So when the science started to become more formed around it and it started to become part of a national conversation, I didn't need to be convinced because, uh, you know, I, I had seen this within an industry that I had worked in. And then I also saw, you know, through those early 2000s, uh, Victoria experienced uh, what was the Alpine fires in 2002, 2003, and then again the fires in 06 and 07 uh, in Gippsland. and the fire behaviour that was being experienced had never been experienced before, the drying of the landscape and so on. And then, of course, we had 2009, Black Saturday 2009, where we had never seen fire conditions like that. And now we, subsequent to that fire and a recommendation of the Royal Commission, we have the catastrophic as part of the fire danger rating system. That was a a recommendation of, of the Royal Commission. Yeah, I never needed to be convinced around that, but I I am aware, I mean, I I read widely and I'm aware there are still people in the community who don't believe in uh, anthropogenic climate change. You know, um, they don't think that men and women's activity on this planet has contributed to that. It's all part of the the normal cycle. Um, From an AIDA perspective, though, we don't advocate around climate change or anything like that. We just accept that, the planet has become warmer, and because of that, we are seeing increased fire activity of a scale greater and more frequent than we have seen previously. We are seeing floods that are um, occurring across the landscape uh, in areas, some areas that have always you know, been prone to flooding, but now in areas that have not been prone to flooding. And we are seeing more of these sort of cascading and compounding disasters starting to occur as well. Um, at the moment in Victoria, uh, we have just seen a, a, a mega storm rip through the Mount Dandenong Ranges and listening to people uh, 
you know, comment on ABC Radio who've lived there all their lives and saying we have never seen winds of this magnitude. We have never seen these huge mountain ash trees ripped out of the ground effectively. So I, I don't think that we can broadly generalise about, you know, everyone's on board with this and everyone ha has a view that we need to prepare and adapt and transform. However, I think key decision makers, what I am seeing in my role, is key decision makers across a broad range of sectors that we work with. So insurance, property, local government, state government, policy makers, academia, they all see the need to take action to reduce disaster risk. And Australia now has a national disaster risk reduction framework that was endorsed by COAG in March of 2020. And that has been if you like, endorsed by uh, all governments across Australia through that COAG process. And uh, I think that, you know, we are now starting to see uh, a joining up of effort across a broad range of sectors to reduce risk. You have, a, I guess, an understanding of communications, of behaviour change. Do you think, well, there's a couple of questions I've got. There's, there's one around hope and, and you sound optimistic and sort of um, that there is a level of change happening that's that's positive and that where it matters that the, the change is happening. What balance do you need individually in your work, the people around you, the people you speak to? What balance is there that you need in terms of teaching people on the ground that maybe want to reject it and also that those minority of people that maybe still are struggling versus just getting on with it and saying, look, most people are on board, you know, let's just do what we have to do and, you know, we'll see who follows. What, what sort of balance do you have to take there? Okay, so from my perspective, I am hopeful because I think I'm a born optimist and, you know, everyone who's known me a long time would say that, but I'm also hopeful because I see so many hundreds of wonderful initiatives from the grassroots level, from, you know, communities, from schools, from business, from local government. I see each year hundreds of applications come through the uh, Resilient Australia Awards program, which Ada runs on behalf of the Commonwealth Government. So each year I have the privilege of being one of the judges of those awards. And so I get to read about all these wonderful, you know, resilience projects that are occurring at that grassroots level. And I also see more and more peer learning. So, you know, a, a school is undertaking a, a particular project and then, you know, a, a school in a neighbouring area also decides to run a unit of curriculum around disaster resilience education with their young people. And we know that young people are advocates and champions of change within their own communities. And so they take those messages home to their, you know, families who then are encouraged to take action. Uh, I think, Matthew, you're a teacher and you probably know the, the power of young children in families as advocates of change. And there are no doubts that young children are concerned about climate change. Ada uh, completed a piece of work uh, last year called uh, Our World, Our Say, and we um, did surveys with 1,500 young people. And climate change and the impacts of climate change are one of the top concerns of young people. So. We don't need to, you know, advocate to young people that this is an issue. They see that this is an issue. And you just have to look at the climate strikes and so on to know that young people are taking action around this issue. From our perspective, from an AIDA perspective, we're not so concerned. Our, our remit is not around climate change action. Our remit is around if we accept that the world is changing, what do we need to do to be prepared to take action and to be more resilient? That's what I'm seeing in my work. It's wonderful that you've got that hope and that you do see those positives and, and it is stemming from the young but also within communities. When when you do go and you, I guess, discuss resilience across the board, you've got the adaptation, the transformation and the learning. Are they all automatically on board from the start and do they need to be or is there a, a process where there's a national framework where all right, all of these schools are going to have this protection if they're in a fire zone and it just happens? Or do you have to get the learning and the understanding around the community to say yes to that? Like, how does it work? Well, it works 
differently everywhere is probably the first thing to say. So we are a federated nation, as you know. So uh, what is happening in Tasmania is different than what's happening in South Australia and so on. So it's very hard for me to be more specific. So I'll, I'll speak more generally. We know that in order to uh, change and transform and adapt, it needs both that you know, top-down approach, so policy, regulatory reform, legislation, all those sorts of levers of governments of all levels need to shift in order to um, you know, reduce risk for communities. So if we accept that resilience occurs in place at a community scale, we see these, you know, terrific bottom-up initiatives where communities are resilience ambassadors and young people are learning about disaster resilience education in schools and local governments are taking action. But some of the enablers of resilience for that community to be more resilient might be around the provision of telecommunications or electricity. Local communities can't make those decisions. Those decisions are the mandate of federal and or state governments. So uh, we all need to be working together. And this is a national strategy for disaster resilience. It's all around shared responsibility and all working collectively for a common goal, if you like. So I think it's important that people understand at what level they're either working at or, or volunteering within or living within and what is within their uh, power to take action for and, and that those actions that they take reduce their risk. So be it a, a personal risk at a, a household or individual level, you know, understanding I have a flood risk or a fire risk, I have my emergency plan, I know where I'll evacuate to, I'll, you know, I have a wind-up radio and a torch and some water, you know, in my kit. They're the actions individuals can take. Communities can take action because not everyone has the capacity for resilience. We have more vulnerable people in our community. So we have people with a disability, we have elderly people, we have people whose language may, first language may not be English and so they don't receive those you know, warning messages in their own language. So at a community scale, communities can do a lot of work to understand who's in their community, who might be more vulnerable, how are we going to assist those people, you know, if there is an emergency to get to the emergency evacuation centre, for example. So there's community scale activities that it can occur. Um, and I've just come from the Queensland uh, Disaster Management Local Government Conference where Redlands Bay uh, Local Government Area has a community resilience ambassadors program. And these community resilience ambassadors have shirts and they're trained and they step up to be those community advocates and champions uh, during an emergency or disaster to assist their community on the ground. And we see, you know, many, many of those initiatives occurring across the country. And then there are, there are of course, you know, levers that local governments can pull, if you like, to ensure that, you know, future communities are, are going to be, uh, you know, more resilient. So, for example, not allowing development on known floodplains because then, of course, the people who ultimately live in those homes have a flood risk. So how do we get risk out of the system? And some of those decisions are with state and local governments, and they, they go to issues around planning schemes and planning overlays, and they're decisions of governments. You know, from a Commonwealth perspective, uh, there is the new National uh, Recovery and Resilience Agency that will be leading uh, this work on behalf of the country to really understand how we can reduce risk and uh, support resilience uh, into the future. I absolutely love um, everything that you've expressed and it's, it's giving me hope as a, as a probably someone that straddles between optimism and pessimism. And I think I, I do that because I see... And I get to talk to people like yourself that are within it and I can see are doing such positive work and, and have hope and are optimistic and are actually taking action. And then I also see the apathy or the, I, I don't know if it's a, a, a depression or that there's something that's that's growing in society where people feel maybe that they don't have power or that they're fighting against a force that's too strong and then they, they just sort of become... Yeah, that apathetic, but also almost even wanting to destroy the institutions or something, if you like, rather than 
make them even better. And it always ends up coming down to something like money or something like, you know, profit or, or those sort of things. But when you're, when you're talking, you're talking about all these steps that are being taken and that can be taken. How much of the, the behaviours and, and thought processes of people are, I guess, authentic and, and uh, real, you know, in this general context? You're not, you don't know who exactly I'm talking about, but in this generalised context versus maybe the media or even social media or, or a lockdown or something like where that control's lost. What do you think the balance is between the realities of feeling powerless versus the opportunities to be active and, and to actually take action and then for that to be successful? Yeah, look, I think not all people have agency. I would call it agency, you know, the ability to, you know, think about taking action and so on. I mean, we know that. So we know that, for example, during bushfires, the first time someone might engage with their risk is when they receive a warning message, and that's why warnings are so critical because warnings protect life and get people out of the way of things like, you know, bushfires and floods, and warnings are a relatively new capability for the fire and emergency services sector. So to your point, we know that not all people have agency and are able to take action, and, and, and that's fine because people have busy lives and people, you know, have a lot going on. What we do ask of people, though, is that if there is an emergency in their area, you know, they know there's a terrible storm coming or the, the rivers are flooding or, you know, there's a bushfire bearing down on them, that they will seek out information and warnings. And there are multiple channels on which people can do that, either through, you know, an emergency alert text message or, you know, the various uh, fire and emergency agencies across the country have websites and apps that you can download and the ABC as the designated emergency services broadcaster, the Bureau of Meteorology, all provide a great deal of information. Uh, and we know that for some people, the first time they'll engage with that risk that they may have, you know, they may live in a flood-prone or a bushfire-prone area, and the first time they engage with that risk is when there is a fire or a flood. And that's okay as long as they do take the advice of emergency services and heed those warnings and take appropriate action at that time. So we know not everyone is a community champion. You know, some people uh, aren't connected into their community and, and those sorts of things. But the research does show that even if you haven't, if, so for example, if you live in a bushfire prone area and you've taken no action and a bushfire is coming, you are likely to know that potentially your neighbour has taken action or the people down the road have taken action. And there is research to show that people will watch and copy or mimic the actions of others who they know are better prepared. So when they, for example, start seeing their neighbour packing the car and, you know, putting all the, you know, important documents into it and so on, they'll think, oh, you know, he knows what he's doing or she knows what she's doing, I'll do that as well. So that's based in psychosocial understanding of, of you know, people's behaviour. So people will act in a way that they think is appropriate if they think other people have more knowledge than they do. You know, and we saw that during the um, New South Wales fires of, you know, Black Summer, and those fires went for many, many, many months. And there were many, many communities that were able to protect themselves and take action and get out of path of those bushfires through doing just that, listening to warnings, downloading the fires near me and taking action. Now, some of those people took action quite late and ended up on, on beaches and so on uh, to protect themselves, and that's certainly not something that we would advocate for. However, uh, the data would show that about 150 people are alive today because of the efficacy of the warnings that were issued by the RFS in New South Wales during that fire campaign. Yeah, I, I just have, um, I guess, there's so much this trust in, in institutions and in people with the knowledge and the experts, and it's really great to hear that people when they when push comes to shove that they they're willing to listen to even if they are not wanting to listen or maybe even not engaging but even worse perhaps even rejecting it and saying it's wrong but the example that you've given is through bushfires and 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 disasters in that respect and i see it now with vaccination rates in victoria skyrocketing because of an outbreak whereas when it was being um spruiked but when there were no cases people just didn't see the point or the need. So that, that does make sense and the evidence is clear there, I guess. I mean, I lived through the, the Melbourne lockdown of 2020, like uh, you did as well, Matthew, and 
I think you saw a great deal of what I'll call collectivism. You know, there was a very collective view that we needed to, you know, stay home, work from home, protect ourselves. And while we saw small elements of the community protesting the need to wear masks and the need to be in lockdown, the vast majority of Victorians did as they were asked by their government. The most recent lockdown, I think we're seeing uh, greater numbers of people who are dissatisfied with having to do this again, um, and whether that's uh, because people are weary of these lockdowns now that we've just had our fourth lockdown. But certainly last year, you saw a collective action across Victoria. And I, I was really proud to be a Victorian, to see people taking that action to protect their fellow Victorians. And it's certainly not something you saw in the US at the same time last year where people were not locking down, were not wearing masks, and it became politicised. And, you know, the resultant significant death rate that it was experienced across the states would suggest that you know, their approach around, you know, um, individualism versus collective action, which, you know, we had in Victoria, uh, I think you can see the outcomes of those two approaches. Yeah, and that's a great little segue into something you mentioned earlier about individual action, community action, and then the, the overarching policy action as well, and that there needs to be the three levels that that are there. And, and as you say, not everyone's going to have agency to be involved, but whether they look to someone that does have that agency, that, that should give people hope. I, I listen, I speak to and engage with a lot of people that listen to this podcast and, and they get their glimmer of hope from someone that does something and, and they go, oh, I'm going to volunteer for that or I'm going to read that book or I'm going to give that a go because of something they hear. So you've given already a little bit about what people can do as individuals, especially in the emergency context, but as yourself as a leader and as a as a woman that's in leadership, which, you know, is an extra barrier, and then someone that's had kids and, you know, a new grandmother, there's all these things that life throws at you. So, you know, your your priorities could easily shift to, all right, I'm going to focus on just family only, you know, lock myself away with them and, you know, find a little beach shack and, and live with them and, and do nothing else. What keeps you driven? What keeps you realising that you have agency and want to and want to show that and then also to overcome on top of that have there been some challenges for you that you've had to overcome that make you even stronger today well all of the above Matthew I don't think you get to my age without having had some challenges thrown at you in life uh, but to your question about what gets me up what what motivates me um, and it goes to an earlier question you asked me my community now is the disaster resilience community so they are people who are working across all levels of government, uh, fire and emergency management agencies, in communities, doing this great work. And they inspire me every day by what they do. So I have the fortunate uh, position to go to conferences where you know I might speak or listening to other speakers who are talking about all these wonderful initiatives underway. So as I said earlier, that does give me hope. But it also inspires me because I think to myself, this is about collective action, and I find myself as a leader in this space in uh, 2021, which is a privileged position to be in. But, uh, you know, Ada's role is really around influencing and catalyzing that change and, and having a national lens on that, if you like. So we get to see, you know, the best initiatives that are happening in Queensland, and we can come back and talk to them, you know, about them in Victoria or in Tasmania. We're doing a national roadshow at the moment around the Australian Disaster Resilience Index, which has just been uh, created by Dr Mel Parsons from UNE as part of the Bushfire Natural Hazards Research Program. And it's a macro scale, whole of Australia resilience index, where we can see capacities for resilience down to an SA2 level. And we're currently running uh, workshops in clinics across the country for local government and fire and emergency services people because this can help them to plan and target their efforts to work with those communities who have less capacity for resilience. So if we accept that there's, you know, resources are finite and we have to use our resources to best effect collectively, so where do we need to target our efforts? And, and tools such as ADRI give us the ability to do that. So I, I get to do interesting work with very capable, intelligent people who uh, are collectively trying to make a difference for this country to support uh, a resilient Australia. 
in the face of an increasingly um, uncertain world due to the impacts of climate change. So that's what motivates me and that's what keeps me going. And and what are some of the challenges that you faced in general and, and as a woman in leadership? Look, I think... Um, I think being a woman has its own challenges, especially around that whole issue of, you know, childcare and how do you juggle being there for your children and also being able to, you know, work and progress your career. I think that increasingly, and I see now, you know, with my son as a new parent, I think increasingly I see couples sharing that burden of childcare more, which is a fabulous thing. Um, I was very fortunate that I had a very supportive mother who um, I, I think um, children get sick. Uh, there's a sort of, there's a, um, a formula that must be out there that says the most important meeting you have that you can't possibly miss is the day that one of your children will be unwell. So, um, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to have um, my mother who was, who'd been a career woman herself and was prepared to uh, come and support me so that I didn't miss those, you know, critically important meetings. But you know, it's always a challenge. It's always a juggle. You always feel that you're not quite giving enough to someone, be it one of the children or to your relationship or to your career. But ultimately, I look back and I'm really thankful that I persevered because I know a lot of women of my generation just gave up. It just became too hard. Um, And if you read Annabelle Crabb's book, why women need a wife and men need a life. If you read that book, there's a lot of great data in there around how this issue plays out in, at a community level. And there are many women who graduate university, as I did, and then get into their 30s and have, you know, one or two or three children and it just all becomes too hard and they take on part-time roles and their careers effectively stall. I had my children relatively young when my career was in its infancy um, compared to today. And so therefore, once they, you know, became school age, I've now been able to be, you know, back in the workforce as a full-time working parent for 25 years. So that, I suppose, you know, has helped me to progress my career. And and what do you do personally that helps you persevere and be resilient and and, uh, balance those priorities? Do you have a a faith, a, a spiritual process, a, a, a exercise regime, a, a mentor? What what do you do? Uh, probably, again, all of the above. Yes, I, I do have faith. I do believe in a higher power. I'm not, you know, a churchgoer or anything like that anymore. I grew up in that sort of tradition, but now it's more of a, a karmic view of, you know, being kind and being humble and trying to do your best and trying to help others, that sort of guides my value set I suppose I do go to the gym I make myself go to the gym and I've just been back at the gym today we've just come out of lockdown for those listening to this podcast and I was in the gym at seven o'clock I find it's really good for my mental health and well-being and I I found that last year but I do like to walk I walk most days um, even if I can't uh, go to the gym just to get out and walk through the parks and gardens around Melbourne is really important for mental health I'm still a skier 50 years this year since I learned to ski, so um, I'll be heading to the slopes this year. Uh, and until COVID, the impacts of COVID, I do like to travel. You know, I've been fortunate to uh, be able to travel overseas for both uh, work and also for private holidays and so on. So I see travel again, you know, back in my future. I like to cook. This year I decided I was going to teach myself something new and with a grandchild due, I um, have become a knitter for the first time in my life and I've uh, knit one baby blanket and with another grandchild uh, imminent, I'm halfway through the second blanket and I taught myself off YouTube. So that was um, a bit, bit of fun to learn how to cast on on YouTube. They're the sorts of things that, you know, keep me sane, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's just so important to always be able to be creative but to learn a new skill to to ensure your brain is just ticking over with not the same old you know no matter how in depth you get eventually it becomes you know second nature to to do what you do at times even though when you look at it you know 20 years ago you'd say how I would never have known how to do this and then it just becomes the norm so even something you know to pick up like knitting is incredible and I found the same with lots of activities that I I do struggle to to stay involved in but when I do get involved it's a new lease on on life in a way it's it's something new and exciting to 
to sort of get your hands around. I love travel as well, and and no one's been able to do it for a little bit. So to get that, the memory of what it's like and and how important it is to, I guess, see parts of the world, do you have a trip or a memory of uh, overseas or interstate travel that you've done or even within the state that might have been memorable that you can, that you'd like to share with us? something that really sticks in my mind is I was at a conference uh, in Chicago a couple of years ago and I had the opportunity to uh, go to New York just for a couple of days. I think I was only there for 48 hours and I crammed as much as I could possibly cram into it. So I remember uh, flying in on a curfew flight from Chicago uh, into LaGuardia Airport in New York and then um, I had a hotel near Times Square and it was nearly midnight and I just went out and stood in Times Square near that ball and just was pinching myself. I couldn't believe I was in New York. I was just so excited. And then walking down, you know, streets with names like Broadway and, you know, the theatre district and I, you know, went and caught a show and um, I went to uh, see, you know, the Strawberry Fields Memorial and it was just yeah, it was extraordinary. As I said, it was only two short days. I don't think it was even 48 hours, but uh, New York is on my list to go back to. I also was fortunate to uh, be able to go to the Freedom Tower, um, and that was sort of as part of my work uh, with the emergency management uh, people. And, of course, the Freedom Tower was replaced the World Trade Centre building, so I spent time at the, the World Trade Centre, and I think anyone who's been involved in fire and emergency management it's very poignant to spend time there and to understand about what occurred and the lives of the, the victims of that and the first responders. You know, first responders are running into danger when everyone else is running away. And, you know, that was incredibly brave of those first responders and, and many of whom lost their lives because they responded to that tragedy. And then, you know, spend time in the Freedom Tower and understand the engineering and the fire safety systems they have in that building is quite extraordinary. So New York will certainly be right up there uh, when I can, well, when we can all return to travel. And seeing what was occurring in New York last year with the impacts of COVID was just heartbreaking. I had a dream last night, Amanda. This is strange, but I, it was a nightmare. I was in the... World Trade Center, I was on one of the towers when the plane hit in this dream last night. This is no word of a lie, probably this morning, you know, a few hours ago, and that you mentioned that. But I was, and I was terrified. I was so terrified. And you just talked about emergency services. I mean, that was a dream, but, you know, you've seen enough to sort of get a, a feel of it and empathy for. And I remember watching that documentary about the firefighters in New York that um, there was that documentary by those two French. Uh, filmmakers that they, you know, mm. and I remember watching that. I've seen it a couple of times and it's just amazing to see what people had to go through in the emergency services world and, and you know, that camaraderie but that bravery too. I can't imagine ever having to put myself in that situation. You would have seen it being part of the CFA as well as now in your in your job. Does something set these people apart or is it just something like when you talk to them, is there something that they that you know oh, that's the person I can I can trust and go to or is there a trigger that just happens to people when when it when they're facing it look well just to, to clarify I'm not a first responder so I I'm not the one through the door um I'm you know in in the background you know doing work to support those people so you know during Black Saturday fires I was leading public information and warnings as part of an incident management team so certainly trying to help the community but not the one on the end of the fire hose so just to, to clarify that yeah but look I've had the privilege of meeting probably hundreds if not thousands of first responders in my career and I would say they all are motivated by the desire to help others I mean effectively they turn up for work and they are effectively going to put themselves potentially on any given day into a dangerous situation now they mitigate that danger through PPE gear personal protective clothing training you know they train very very hard to ensure that they are as safe as possible during these you know, emergency events, be it a house fire or a bushfire or a flood or, you know, whatever it might be, an explosion. But there is still a risk to them that they sign up to do by being a first responder. 
there is still risk. You know, most of us go to work and sit in an office or stand in front of a classroom. That's not their life. So, yes, there is something that is unique, I think, about the first responder community. And I think it's about their desire to help their fellow citizen. I mean, I think you'd have to ask a first responder, really, but that, that's what I I see, and it's that kind of power of humanity. You know, we're all in this together, and, you know, I have the, if you like, the skill set and the acumen to take on this role on behalf of my community, and I'm going to do that. A little um, link that I made while you were talking there was about the human response and the overarching need to help and desire for people to do so and that they would do it for anyone. And this happens from the tip of, you know, all ends of Australia in city, country, everywhere, as well as probably around the world too. You see it when there's an earthquake somewhere and there's people digging all night to find someone and, and all of that sort of thing that occurs. And then you talked earlier about the individual society and some of the the pre-work that would have needed to be done and the communications work that would have needed to be done in the US, for example, to stop the spread of COVID or versus the collective approach that we have in Australia. But at the end of the day, it's all about, like you said it earlier, right at the start, you said we all have the same values. You said that we all, if you get down, dig down deep enough that we do have the same values. You're a communicator as well as all the other work that you do, do you think it's the job of communication to ensure that maybe people become more collective before the disaster hits? Or is it the role of maybe getting more personal enlightenment? Is there, uh, this is a big question, but is there something that you personally, you know, maybe on a personal level or Ada's opinion, but what do you think the, the next step that could be made for society to just be even stronger than it is? That's a very good question, Matthew. Look, I think communication plays a role within this. I think, you know, we need clear communication. And at a time when I think the communication space is more crowded than it's ever been before, there's so much noise out there. You know, I grew up at a time where there was four channels on your TV and probably a couple of stations on your radio. And if you went in the car with Dad, it was ABC. If you went in your car with your mother, who was hidden groovy, you got to listen to 3XY. There were very limited communications channels. Now there are myriad communications channels. But I think, you know, that's both an opportunity and a challenge. So the opportunity is that if you can tailor and target your message to the listening audience, be that the and I say listening in a broad sense, it could be Facebook, it could be Instagram. If you can tailor and target your messaging to those audiences, then you're probably going to be quite effective at communicating because, you know, different people will respond to different messages. So the young influencer community is not going to respond in the same way that the ABC listening audience is, which tends to be an older demographic. I think that they are the real opportunities that we have and governments have, particularly around COVID. Far be it for me to tell governments what to do, but, you know, I'm wondering why they aren't speaking to the 30-something influencer generation about can you go off and get the vaccine and take an Instagram shot of you doing it and come up with a really cool hashtag and, you know, if you do that, we'll pay you a bit of money because influencers have hundreds of thousands of people following them. You know, in the same way that influencers sell gym gear and clothing and so on, why aren't we working with them to sell the message around vaccination? I, I don't understand why that's not being done. Same with, you know, our faith-based communities. How do we work with our faith-based communities where their communication is probably through more informal channels, particularly if they come from a cold background? But how can those uh, messages get through to those communities. I, I um, read something just recently, two or three days ago, and there was an elderly Afghanistan man went to a vaccination centre and just couldn't figure out what to do. You know, English was his second language, very limited English, didn't know how to fill in the form. But there was a young, young Afghani woman who was a security guard there. And she sat down with him, explained the whole process, helped him fill in the form, he was vaccinated. The next day, he came back with 25 of his fellow community members, elderly Afghani community members, because he knew that that woman would be there to help them get vaccinated. Now, I just thought that was a great example of community connectedness at the local level, and it's those sorts of things that make a difference. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. The There's a few things there. There's trust. There's um, information being almost irrelevant without trust, but also without the the tools to actually get it across in the in the right manner, as you suggested. But also that personal agency for that security guard, that young woman, to not just stand there and say that's not my job to talk to you know going over and and taking initiative and doing that and and the difference that she made, which would probably do so much more than, you know a photo of a politician getting the jab in the arm or something, you know, it's it's unbelievable how much power an agency we can have, you know, in the, in the right situation. Correct. And I think that's to your point, you know, when you say what can people do listening to this podcast, we all have the ability to do something, all of us. Mm. You know, you don't have to be white and privileged and educated to have agency and take action. You know, some of the initiatives that I see in my work that are, are happening often happen by people, you know, are often led by people who have not very much to share, but they're able to catalyse others within their community just by having a great idea. I did some work. I volunteered with an organisation called Disaster Relief Australia, which is a veteran-led organisation uh, that go into communities with, with veterans and emergency services workers to you know, assist with things like, you know, chainsawing and clearing fence lines and so on, you know, after a bushfire or, or flood, cleaning out houses, things like that. So I volunteered to do that in northern New South Wales between Christmas and New Year, the year before last, before COVID, after they'd experienced terrible bushfires in, in northern New South Wales. Long story, we ended up in this quite remote community uh, in a recovery centre, which was one of those old you know, halls that probably would have been used in the 1920s for the local community dance. Anyway, these women from this community were running this recovery centre just with donations. You know, they weren't paid. They didn't have a title of community recovery officer or anything like that. They were just people in the local community who had seen a need and had got the key to, you know, from local government to open the hall and put a sign by the side of the road saying, you know, we need donations of, you know, non-perishable goods and clothing and so on. You know, I went into this hall and, you know, looked around, very well organised, as often, you know, country women will do, you know, clothes down one side, tin goods down the other, you know, baby clothes at the back, all this sort of thing. Got talking to some of the women and heard about their stories and what we could do to help. We were there to, you know, do chainsawing and clear fence lines, but we needed to know if they needed any assistance as well. And it turned out that two of the women had lost everything in the fires. They literally had arrived at the hall with clothes that were on their backs. So when I say, you know, you don't need to, to have a lot to do a lot, these were women that were, you know, the heart and soul of their community, stepping up every day to run a recovery centre for others when they had lost everything. And so I, I think that it really, to me, is the power of the community and the power of their humanity that said, and they would say, oh, well, we're not as bad off as the other woman down there. She lost her husband, you know, her husband had perished in the fires. And one woman said to me, this is my reason for getting up in the morning now if they were living in a caravan on their block. She said, I don't want to stay in my caravan all day and look at the burnt wreck of my house. I'd rather go to the community recovery centre and help my fellow community members. And so that's what she was doing day in, day out. And I think that we see community members like that right across Australia doing just as that woman was doing. A uh, message of hope there again and on, on that level of the individual once again. So I thank you for continually bringing that um, that hope to us, Amanda. Moments of Clarity is the name of the podcast and at the end of every episode I ask our guests to share a moment of clarity that, that they've had recently, something that, you know, has shifted your mindset or changed your mind or inspired you. Earlier, but I've just come from the Queensland Local Government Disaster Management Conference and hearing the stories of local governments, local communities taking action, working collaboratively. Uh, they've just released the Burdekin. The Burdekin Flood River catchment is one of the, the largest catchments in Australia and regularly floods and impacts communities. And eight local government areas have worked collaboratively to develop a strategy for that and an implementation plan. Uh, working with their communities to understand flood risk. And so, you know, I'm really inspired and I'm heartened that I'm seeing so much collaborative effort 
And certainly that was my feeling when I came back from this Queensland conference. There is so much great work being done uh, across Queensland by local government, by uh, the Queensland Reconstruction Agency, QRA, um, by community members, community volunteers. It is inspiring and uh, I commend them for their work. Is there anywhere that people can find you or the work that your institution, you know, your organisation is doing if they, they're interested or, or want to find out more? Yes, so ADA has um, a website, ADA, aidr.org.au, and, you know, you will find a great deal of resources there that can assist people in their work. Uh, we have the Knowledge Hub with a whole range of uh, collections on understanding hazards and uh, bushfires and tsunami and flood and so on, understanding disaster risk. We have uh, the National Disaster Risk Reduction Framework on there. We have handbooks on a whole range of topics from land use planning to community engagement and companion tools. Um, and they are designed to assist practitioners of all levels to work with their community. So I encourage you to um, have a look at that site. We run uh, a lot of events and professional development activities, masterclasses, webinars, clinics, conferences. We have the Australian Disaster Resilience Conference coming up in August in Sydney. We have masterclasses with the Bureau of Meteorology to have better understanding of severe weather. So there's lots of opportunities to um, build your own understanding and knowledge base through accessing the resources on the ADA website. Brilliant. Thanks so much for joining me, Amanda. I, I Thank you for the time and, and um, you know, your passion and hope and, and your, uh, your knowledge as well. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thanks very much, Matthew. I've enjoyed it. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe would be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.